Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Make yourselves at home in our little home above the street here in the District of Wonders. Grab the usual treats, beverages, chums. Settle into the nook. If you're new to the district, if you've never been to the nook and to Tales to Terrify, I am Lawrence Santoro, and you have run yourselves into the midst of a vast and cosmic tale. Tonight's segment, in fact is the one that had Grandpa Lovecraft on his feet and kicking with joy. Remember that from last week? Yes? Well, settle in for a nice, long visit tonight, children. You won't mind, will you? We've got the penultimate hour or so of William Hope Hodgson's House in the Borderland, read for us again by Master Nicholas Cam, and we've got what Television Land calls... A very special episode of Sylvia Schultz's Lights Out, in which authors Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross speak of their experiences of five nights and five days in a haunted cabin in the woods of the California gold country. So, we have a lot to cover tonight, and there is very little time for me, so... Allow me to slink off to tend the air conditioner and help Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, refresh the treats while you gather round Sylvia, Tamara, and Alistair. Are you all ready for lights out, everybody? Hello, this is Sylvia Schultz, your host for Lights Out, 
Welcome to the show. One of the very best parts about being a ghost hunter and a writer is the opportunity I have to meet interesting people. Sometimes they're people I've admired from afar for years. I got the chance to chat with two of those people recently. I have a real treat for you guys all out there in electron land. So gather around the soft glow of the computer screen and let's go lights out. Once upon a time, there was a young horror writer named Sylvia Schultz. She read every creepy book she could get her hands on and quickly decided that third person was going to get old fast. One day, I picked up a lovely, thick, chewy-looking novel called Bad Things. It was written by an author named Tamara Thorne. It rocked my world. I went out and scoured bookstores looking for anything else by this fabulous, gory, sexy writer, an author who pulled no punches and who wrote with one hand on the throttle and the other wrapped around a Jack and Coke. She very quickly rose to the top of my where have you been all my life authors. Then I discovered that Tamara is also a ghost hunter. Again, world rocked. I friended Tamara on Facebook and started following her posts. A while ago, she posted a series of reports on the time she and her writing partner, Alistair Cross, spent in a cabin, a cabin that was said to be haunted. I hopped onto the blog, devoured the posts, and then had the most awesome idea. It is my pleasure to bring you Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross as they share with us their deliciously creepy story of their stay in a haunted cabin. Okay, my head's not where it should be because I'm like talking to one of my author idols right here. So, okay. I'll probably, I'll just do my introduction um, at a later time when I put the show together. But um, I will take the opportunity to be a slobbering fan dork for a moment here. Um, Tamara, you have been one of my writing idols for, gosh, over a decade now. Um, I, I have, I got your, I won your sorority trilogy in a contest that I entered. And about the only reason I entered the contest was because I saw what the prize was. It was books by Tamara Thorne, signed by Tamara Thorne. And I just had to enter the contest. So just because of that prize. And I do wanted to say that, um, your scene in Bad Things where Robin has already been taken over by the Green Jacks and Ricky is watching him out the window and Robin catches the frog and oh. tears it apart. <laughs> Spoilers for anyone who hasn't read Bad Things yet, which I highly suggest you do. Um, <laughs> that was one of those scenes where I remember where I was and what I was doing when I was sitting reading this book. It made that much of an impression on me. <laughs> and that I, I was sitting here reading it going oh my god that's disgusting this is fabulous and it's it's a woman writing it and I'm, I was trying to, to get a career as a horror writer started at that point and 
I said, my gosh, if she can do it, I can do it. (laughs) Maybe not as well, but I can do it. So I, many, many, many years later, I used that as kind of the inspiration for one of my scenes in a short story, a novella that I wrote in uh, the the last story in my collection, Dark at the Heart of the Diamond. And it's set in ancient Egypt and the, the kid gets possessed by the spirit of a dead pharaoh. And his father knows it, and it's his father's punishment for robbing the pharaoh's tomb. And the the kid, uh, it takes the kid to the river, and the kid picks up a, a fish, and starts gnawing on it, and it turns into this dead hand because they they cut thieves' hands off in ancient Egypt. That was the punishment, and so it was all tied together. Really cool. So anyway, that's that's. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. So I I have you to thank. You you may, you may take credit for that scene. <laughs> I remember where I was sitting when I had him peeing in the lemonade and licking the butter. <laughs> so it grossed me out, and I was cackling while I was writing it. <laughs> I can totally imagine that. Awesome. Okay. So um. Now, I know, Tamara, that you have a background in paranormal investigation. You have several entries in the Encyclopedia of Haunted Places that was edited by uh, Jeff Belanger of Ghost Adventures. Um, Tell me about your background in ghostly things, and then we'll we'll ask Alistair the same question. Okay, well, it started when I was a wee tot. I just always liked ghost stories. I collected them, you know, from, well, first grade on. Mm-hmm. And then I've always been very skeptical, which is handy for what I do. And, then, you know, I wrote ghost stories. And then when Haunted came out, not too long after that, the ghost hunting thing got big. And people started mistaking me for David Masters, the hero in the book, who's a horror writer who hunts <laughs> ghosts. This was like having my cake and eating it, too. Mm-hmm. And so I started getting involved more and more in, you know, speaking to ghost hunting groups and all kinds of things like that, and I get to stay in the haunted room for it. And, you know, it's just heaven on earth to me. And I guess what, jumping back to when I was 21, we had a house. Uh, we rented a house. We were newlyweds. And it was odd. It jumped. Uh, things jumped in it. There was a slight poltergeist phenomena, and I was convinced there was a glitch in the gravity because it didn't scare me. That's in my blog. Um and then a couple of years later, we had a house that scared the crap out of me when we went to move out. Mm. It, footsteps started up. And I thought there was a prowler in the house. And, you know, I had a broomstick and I was going down the hall yelling, I've got a gun. <laughs> and I got to the front of the house where I could get into the foyer and out of there. And the footsteps had stopped. And then all of a sudden they started right in front of me and went right past me. And I heard the door behind in the, the first door in the hall slam shut, but it didn't. And I was out of there like a shot, and I waited for my husband, and we're moving out. And he thought that was pretty funny until the same stuff started happening to him later later in the day. So, we, you know, I really value that because otherwise I get so skeptical. There's very little I won't write off. And those two incidents, the, the first house with the uh, poltergeist energy, that one... The real kicker was I'd never told my husband, and the real kicker was the day that we were sitting eating sandwiches in the kitchen, and there was a full trash can right in the middle of the room we were facing that needed to be taken out. Well, it 
levitated off the ground maybe two inches and then just slammed down and we both saw it and the, the jaws dropped did you see that and we still talk about it wow. so those things let me know early on there is stuff that i can't explain and i love that <laughs> i love the mystery so that's pretty much it i go to haunted places in order to just soak up the atmosphere for books and i go to haunted houses when people ask me to soak up the atmosphere mm. <laughs> and that's all Okay, Alistair, I know very little, actually, about you personally, um, but what was your background in paranormal? Um, Well, I really have none. Um, Tamara approached me with uh, the idea of doing this because we had already decided that we were going to write together, and we both have a fascination with paranormal and ghosts and things like that, and... Um, she approached me with this idea, and, and we knew at that point, we'd already decided we were going to write together, and we kind of were thinking, we probably ought to meet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we probably should see each other, you know, before we commit to this, you know? <laughs> and so it, was, it really was just kind of an opportunity to for us to meet, and it, was, and, and it sounded really fun. And uh, I don't have any uh, major inexplicable things other than it, you know, experiences other than a few things when I was little. You know, I, you know, thought, you know, I heard some things. I, you know, kind of had a creepy house that I grew up in. At least I think it was creepy. Some of my friends thought it was creepy, too, so it wasn't just me. Hmm. But yeah, I've never been um, really closed-minded about it. It's And I would love, I'd love to, to experience something that made me, you know, convinced that, that there's something out there. And so I jumped on this. Yeah, I meant to ask you, how did you guys decide to become collaborators? <laughs> well, like you, I was a big fan. Uh, am a big fan. I have been since, you know, the 90s. And uh, I, I uh, decided, you know, several years ago that I wanted to uh, be a writer. And I started writing. And um, I wanted to meet some of my heroes. So I started uh, doing interviews, author interviews on my blog. And Tamara was one of the first people that I hit up about that and we just really clicked and it was it was pretty incredible wonderful fantastic I'm sitting here with a great big grin on my face I'm living <laughs> vicariously <laughs> it was pretty clear for me it was a really really big deal I mean I'll never forget when yeah. she brought it up to me I was just like are you, are you, are you serious? Are you mm. serious? I, didn't even, I wasn't even sure I understood her. I just had to call her back. <laughs> yeah, well, we both hate telephones. And the thing yeah. is, we kept getting on the phone with each other, and the hating telephone rule went out the window. <laughs> and yeah. we realized we were making up stories together before we'd ever talked about writing together. And we'd had some other experiences that were similar that put us in the right frame of mind to work together. Mm-hmm. And it was just... We could finish each other's sentences from the start, so it was sort of meant to be, I think. Oh, nice. Too cool. Okay, well, the focus of Lights Out is about people telling about their ghostly encounters. So you guys went to a haunted cabin for a week, and you basically turned it into a writing adventure for a week. Um, How did you find this cabin in the first place? A friend of mine from when I was a little kid and would visit my uh, aunt and uncle up in Gold Country in Cal- Northern California. Mm. Um, I'd known her, I, I call her Ellie here, uh, just off and on for years. 
she, uh, someone she knows had bought a cabin and then had a lot of trouble with it. They didn't even stay in there more than a night. Mm. Um, they were afraid. And it had a reputation. He got it for a song. Mm. And uh, so she, he was looking for somebody to go in there and tell him whether it was haunted or not. She knew I liked to do that. So <laughs> she mailed me. And we ended up doing it. And, you know, the only thing was we couldn't take pictures or give any names or any locations, that sure, kind of thing. Yeah. But who cares? It was a haunted cabin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that's how it started. Okay. So what gave you guys the idea to, to take a working vacation there? Being asked to do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and wanting, wanting to meet in, yeah. face, in person, face-to-face. Yeah, it's no fun. Oh, that was the first time you had met face-to-face? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we didn't want to, uh, you know, it, it was a good excuse to meet. And I'm forgetting what I'm trying to say. We, when you get invited to do something like that, you really don't want to go to that alone. Because <laughs> your imagination's probably going to take off, no matter how skeptical you are. Mm-hmm. So I needed somebody with me, and I know, knew he was very level-headed, and I wanted to meet him in person, too. Plus, we were working on, we just started working on our first novel together. I think that's when it turned into a novel, because it had been a short story than a novella. Oh, yeah. nice. At, at the cabin, it became very long. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. So you found inspiration there. That is That, that yes. makes my writer's heart glad. <laughs> well, we found more, because we had been... When we had first been talking on the phone, the story we accidentally made up before I realized, hey, maybe we should try something together, mm-hmm. was about a haunted cabin. Mm-hmm. And here came a haunted cabin, and so we have something about a haunted B&B in the mountains that we're working on, and this ended up giving us some inspiration, which is part of the reason we don't know a lot about the actual incidents there. Mm-hmm. We decided not to find out after the fact. We just know a little about what went on in the cabin before, you know. So okay. we'll find out eventually, but we don't want to know yet. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand that. Very cool. So I, what I would love for you to do now is just tell me stories from that week. Okay. Um, the front bedroom. Boy, was it nasty. Mm. It it had supposedly, this was one of the few things we knew Mm -hmm. in advance. Supposedly, someone had died there. I think it was the 80s, the 70s. I think it was the 80s, though. Uh, An indigent. It had had rafters, you know, exposed beams. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just this little cabin. It was, what, two bedrooms, a big living room, a little bitty bathroom between the bedrooms, and a kitchen behind the living room. And um, this front bedroom, Ellie took us there, and she wouldn't walk in it when we when we got there. Mm. And we did, and it felt like static electricity. She asked us if it was cold. Mm. We said no, but it did feel, you know, all your arm hairs raise up because you're in a static situation. We felt that that day. Wow. And I don't think that first day we noticed much else, but we didn't go exploring. She left, and... Well, what did we do, Alistair? I don't remember. We didn't really do much that first day. We were just, you know, I I met her, and then you and I, of course, met each other for the first time. And so I don't, I my head wasn't really in it that first day. It was just like, oh, this is kind of also weird, you know. Um, we come from San Francisco 
Okay. Yeah, we, we spent the night in Frisco getting to know each other. That sounds wrong. Um, <laughs> not that way. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we were just talking the whole time getting there. So, yeah, we were kind of tuckered out, I guess. Yeah, she, Ellie was, she did not like the, the front bedroom. We, I thought that, that for the most part, the whole the whole place was normally cozy. Yeah. But it, when we did go back there, it, it you know, later on, of course, really. It, it's the next day. Yeah. yeah, the next day was when I started feeling like it was kind of creepy back there. That's when it started getting cold. Mm-hmm. Yes, it did. It really did. It was weird. Yeah. The first, they, there was, there was running water, but only cold water. Mm-hmm. And they, no electricity, but they brought a uh, um, generator up, but it wouldn't run. It just kept turning off, even though it was pretty new. Mm. And uh, we had all the usual battery drainage problems start just almost immediately. He had just switched to e-cigarettes and was pretty dependent on them at that time. Mm -hmm. And it kept going out. He had to keep going out to the car to recharge it. Oh, wow. Pull the charge. Yeah, the batteries, the batteries, and, you know, the interesting thing is, is the same, the same battery that I was using there, I thought, well, maybe, you know, the battery's bad. Well, it wasn't, because when we got back, but I mean, yeah, it was, it was holding a charge for only, like, five, ten minutes, and I mean, granted, I had wow. just quit smoking, so I was hitting yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't take our, we didn't take our it, it computers in, huh? Sorry. We didn't take our computer. <laughs> we always do that. We didn't oh, yeah. take our computers in because we were afraid of, you know, electrical anom- anom- electrical anomalies. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was uh, the the e-cigarette thing, the the, the generator, um, and then I think it was the second day we both started feeling really tired, and it was yeah, it was mm-hmm. a strange kind of tired. It was not. Like, oh, I'm sleepy, and of course a lot of stuff happened, and travel and all that, so mm-hmm. it would make sense, but it was like really, you know, like when you're so tired that your skin hurts, you almost feel like you're getting sick. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was like that. Like, I could just, just sleep and sleep, and yet I wasn't getting sick, you know? We were nodding off for no reason at all. It was wow. very, yeah, and I remember my, my cheeks being really warm, like I had exerted a lot of energy. We know, both had red cheeks. Yeah, huh. and we were doing anything. It was just, it, that was really strange, and, and that started kind of, that kind of bothered me. That was pretty creepy. But it made us, and it made us explore the cabin more. That was when we went back in the front yeah. bedroom, and it was yeah. really cold, mm-hmm. and um, one thing we forgot about was we, we had brought salt with us. Not and, good. Yeah. To use before we left, um, you know, to, to salt the whole cabin and try to neutralize it some. Sure. Uh, we went. Um, what did we? We went into town that day, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we went into town and had lunch to wake up. We were fine once mm-hmm. we were away, and we took all our stuff to our phones to charge. And yeah, well, that, that was the interesting thing too. When we would leave to go into town for you know food or showers or whatever, yeah, I we park right up. Mm. Like I would just feel fine. I would get back, and within half an hour or so, it's like I just want to go to bed. I just want to go to bed. It was just so. But drained. once, once we finally remembered. Well, when we went into town, we we stole a bunch of salt packets at the restaurant <laughs> yeah. and put some in our pockets, and that did help. It helped a lot. That did help. Oh, cool. Yeah. That always seems to help. I don't know why. It's supposed to be a neutralizer of some sort, mm-hmm. but the batteries dying constantly. 
us falling asleep, the cold, the increase of the cold in that front bedroom, it's like where we came to the conclusion that maybe we were being drained. Sure. And um, the other weird thing about the place we should mention is there weren't any birds, and this was in the woods. Mm-hmm. You, we took a mile walk along the road, and about at the mile point, we heard birds again. Oh, yeah. wow, a mile away? Yeah. Yeah, I could be exaggerating, like two-thirds of a mile, but it was a good... It was pretty far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the whole time we were there, we never heard anything. We never heard any birds. It was, no. it was, it was so strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the sense of direction was all gone, and I think that's why there were no birds. Yeah. Uh, the, the brain was being affected. and you know, It happened probably sits on some kind of weird ore or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, I wanted you to mention that. Uh, when you had gone out for a walk and you had trouble navigating your way back to the cabin? Oh, in the woods, yeah. yeah. We went sort of late in the day, and um, I was making these little rock ar- arrows, you know, being <laughs> you know, Girl Scout. And... Um, but we had water and flashlights, and we left the, the kerosene lantern hanging by the back door of the cabin. Mm-hmm. And we stayed in a straight line. But suddenly, as it was getting dark, and, you know, we were being stupid being out that late, but we were anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, we couldn't see the cabin all of a sudden, and we really were starting to think we were going to be stuck in the woods all night. Mm-hmm. But uh, we finally saw the light. But we we, meant, we found this, a tree, and we never found it again. We thought it was very near the cabin, though, mm-hmm. because we saw the light again after that. It looked like somebody had carved. It might have been a pentagram, but we're not sure. Mm. And that was interesting. And then we found an altar later on, or at least I think it was. It was a circle of stones, but they were flat, and there obviously had been no campfire there. Mm-hmm. And there were some stains like I'd seen before. Mm-hmm. When I wrote Eternity, I went to Mount Shasta, and there was an area where we kept seeing little rock altars with blood stains all over them. Oh, my. Yeah, it's gross. And I've seen that big bear, too. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that was... I I would imagine the birds stayed away because the magnet, the oars messed up their sense of direction because it sure messed up mine. <laughs> Normally, I always know north and south. And I get queasy when I lose it. And, oh, boy, did I lose it. Mm. Fortunately, I didn't lose my lunch, though. Oh, good. <laughs> That would have been disgusting. Well, we did hear lots of noises, though. Every night we had noises, even the first night. Oh, wow. But I woke up about 3 a.m., and I was sort of having nightmares, but that's to be expected when you're in a place like that. Mm. And, um, and we were, we just, we had, there were two big couches in the living room, and a fireplace that took up the whole wall mm. you know, not the fire part but this rocky fireplace with crystals and things and so we'd have that burning and the lanterns wouldn't stay on except for the kerosene but we pretty much kept it bright mm-hmm. and we had two sleeping bags and two couches and that's how we you know we didn't split up mm-hmm. that would have been creepy um yeah so the first night it was like three in the morning we woke up hearing little knocks and stuff in the walls but i remember hearing knocks like that in the walls in other cabins when I was a kid and it was probably squirrels the mm-hmm. first night really sounded like that but it was still kind of creepy <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it, it was definitely creepy it's uh, you know and, and, and there's this feeling I think that around the second day that I that I really started feeling and you know and you can't describe it you can't prove a feeling 
but you know you just know when something's there mm. there was that that feeling came and went a lot and that was that was uh i've never really exactly experienced anything like that hmm. it's like the your inner caveman is aware of something off that your intellect keeps saying oh it's probably just scaring yourself <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean, it's it's a morbid, it's kind of a morbid, you know, comparison. But if you've ever been, you know, to an open casket funeral and and you've looked down at, at the body, and and you see this person sitting there, and and you don't feel them, you know, mm. they're just a shell. Sure. And you don't realize until that moment that you can feel people. You know, it's the same thing. Um, you know when there's something there that you can't see. You're not aware that you can really feel it until you do, and then you're like, something's here. I have never heard it explained that way, but that is really, that's really something to think about. Well, yeah. yeah. And, you can't, and you can't tell, you know, you, you can't prove anything like that, but you don't, you just, you feel life. Yeah. You feel it, whether you know it or not. And, and, and likewise, you feel the lack of life. And, and this was... There was a definite sense of something besides us there, and it wow. wasn't. It wasn't constant. It wasn't constant. It came and went, but it it was weird. It was really strange. It, it mm. was. It, it was. I never could have stood that place alone, but with Alistair along, I could be very brave. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. macho in these situations. Yes. You're the one with the experience, so you have to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a girl, that's okay. <laughs> now, you were great, and you explained that really well. It's, it's There's a dark energy there of some sort. I say dark for lack of negative energy, something. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't pleasant. No. And that was also the day we saw the cuckoo clock for the first time in the back bedroom, and we found the suitcase back there. Mm. Yeah, and we were exploring uh, all the rooms, and there was a suitcase up on top in the, in the uh, bedroom. An armor thing, you know, standalone. Yes, and I, I brought that down and pulled it up. There's a bunch of stuff from, uh, like, the 60s, you know, yeah. Old magazines and a calendar actually from I think 1964 I believe yeah I think so and there was a McCall's magazine and yeah. I, I looked in it because I remembered the paper dolls mm. from it mm-hmm. and it had been cut out that page was gone you could still see where the page was because I had yeah. those at that age and um, then the blue dress looked like from the 60s so we yeah. were making up stories about the little girl and her parents yeah, that didn't, that didn't probably help the creepiness at all. <laughs> no, no, and, and that was when we went in the kitchen, yeah, really, and realized we hated the kitchen, and it wasn't super spooky or anything, it was just nasty mm. in there, it didn't have a good feel, so we were making up stories that the parents fought a lot, but interestingly, this stuff was all from the 60s. And that's the decade that they didn't mention. It was the 50s, the 70s, and 80s that had incidents. So we don't know that it had anything to do with anything, but it sure made it fun. <laughs> and did anything happen that night? Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think so. We were still we, we were still a little tired. We were sleeping a lot. I think then. You heard the, the cuckoo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But only you, right as you fell asleep. 
Yeah, we got to the clock. We, we did all that. We went for a walk. Got lost almost. But we were lost. And then um, we came home and we were, you know, falling asleep. And I heard a noise. And I actually didn't get up or, you know, uh, do anything about it then. It was just kind of quiet off. It wasn't really a disturbing sound. I was almost asleep anyway, and I didn't even remember it until later. Stay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it ended up being the cuckoo clock. Because oh, wow. And yeah, exactly. That was probably the, well, it wasn't the creepiest thing, but it was definitely one of the <laughs> creepy things because I didn't even think anything about it. Uh, I fell asleep the next day. We were doing our stuff, whatever. We were doing a lot of writing. You know, we tried to watch a movie. We couldn't because, you know, all the batteries on everything was, you know, we're dead. And the puzzle. Uh, we were working on the puzzle a lot, yeah, too. When uh, we weren't writing, we had a puzzle to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so we also had a Ouija board because we thought it would be oh, fun. Yes. <laughs> that was... It was, yeah, it was a, I'm trying to think, um, we went into town on the third day, yeah. and we were talking about using the Ouija board and stuff, and we were really feeling mm-hmm. pretty proud of ourselves, and um, then we went back, and we were working, and then, um, oh, that was, when, and we weren't tired anymore, and we changed the salt a couple times, you know, to fresh salt in our pockets and all that, Excellent. and, you know, who knows if that was what was working, but it, it, it was great. You know, it was a feather for Dumbo if it wasn't really working. There you go. But we think it was. Yeah. And so that, as it got to be evening, we worked our tails off. We were really proud, and we decided to stay the extra days. Ah. And yeah. so we went out to the car. I did. I went out and got my computer because I had a copy of Airplane in it. Because you oh. don't watch haunted house movies in a place like that. <laughs> and it was totally charged up, and we used mine because it was a Mac, and, you know, they're not supposed to be as weird as... PCs for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the battery was dead in five minutes. And oh, jeez. So, yeah, it went right back in the car, but I took it outside, and I turn around, and I hear the front door open, you know, push open, and that's Alistair, and he's standing there with a look on his face. Uh-huh. He should tell you about that. Oh, please well, do. Yeah, because this was, this was when I heard the clock again and, and knew, you know, I wasn't falling asleep, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't say anything because I I thought for sure that you know oh as soon as you leave I start hearing creepy noises. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those wonderful so, things for your masculinity. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he told me though he did tell me because I was asking about the Ouija because he's starting to act like well maybe we shouldn't. I, what happened? Yeah. You, you know, something happened. I heard this cuckoo and. So I explained to him about residuals. They're nothing, right? They're just, you know, leftovers. Mm-hmm. And so what did we do after that? Um, well, you we kind of have to down. You explained to me kind of like what residual, you know, hauntings or whatever are. And I felt a little more comfortable with it. And well, we decided to go ahead with the keyboard. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Okay, tell us about that. (laughs) Nothing happened for so long that we were making really bad jokes. (laughs) You two? No. (laughs) No, we're very serious. Uh, It was, you know, let's call Zorro, let's call Robin Hood. Because we were bored. And also, if you get silly and lighten up, things may happen because you're not so anxious. Mm -hmm. And they did. Um, we, We... just nothing was happening. We took the hands off, our hands off the planchette, and it appeared to shift several inches. It did move, 
Mm. And at the time, it was, oh, holy cow. And now we're not so sure that we didn't move fast and make it move itself. Mm-hmm. We don't know. But well, I, I, I think it was moving. It moved because we were, you know, is anybody here? Is anybody here? Is anybody here? Then, and then it moved. And I believe, yeah. <laughs> I believe it was moving towards yes. <laughs> no. He might be right. He or well might be right. But there's just no way to be sure. Right, right. We weren't filming it or anything. It, it, it was it was creepy. And then, yeah. this was the same night then, guess who else heard the cubicle? <laughs> Plain as day. Mm. And it was like, what was creepy, and I was trying not to say it to Alistair because I didn't want to spook him, but all these horror movies are going through my head, like, you know, lines from Haunted, the house is waking up. <laughs> <laughs> it's growing in energy. It's alive. Mm. And so I was trying not to say that, but I was sure thinking it. <laughs> wow. So we heard, we heard the cuckoo clock, yeah. you know, clear as, as you know, crystal clear. Mm. So we go to check it out. It's not working. There's nothing in it. We're being, I mean, this really did actually freak us out. We actually, I think we were kind of scared silly because we started laughing and acting like 10-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We went and got the... Um, blankets and the car keys and we went and sat in the car. We didn't oh. need to sleep in the car, but we did. Oh. <laughs> and we had the best sleep that we had there. But yes. yeah, we In the car? Oh, first. no. Yeah, that's my Subaru. It's not that big. Not for a six-footer. And, um, <laughs> you know, we just had this one big blanket. And at first, we were so spooked, we were giggling, and we even had our heads under the blanket, and, you know, with a lantern, <laughs> oh, or a flashlight in the car that yeah. we hadn't brought in. And it's like, oh! <laughs> yeah. and, and we had also noticed the front bedroom was really creepy still, very cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was earlier. But, right. yeah, we fell asleep, and then we woke up, like, nine in the morning. <laughs> and that was, really, that was when we really, really noticed the... Uh, I mean, we noticed it before, but this is when it was really kind of creepy that there were no sounds from birds. Mm. Because, you know, that, that clock thing we thought, you know, maybe it's a bird. You know, who knows? But then we wake up in the morning and we're listening for it and there's nothing. There are no birds. Mm. And that was just the strangest thing. I don't even know that I necessarily would have noticed it had you not really pointed that out, actually. It's just, it was just weird that there were no there was no life. Well, I was you know, still aware of that because it was like eternity and all that. I love writing about elemental energy, and that's kind of what that trans- you know, yeah. translates to. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and we even sat on the porch for a while that morning mm-hmm. after we yeah. changed our salt packets. <laughs> I don't think that anything living wanted to be near that place. That's what I think. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and, um, we did. We explored the whole cabin again that morning, and because we'd gotten silly the night before and turned into ten-year-olds, um, <laughs> we weren't taking it terribly seriously. And it was a residual sound. Nothing had moved. There was the clock was still covered with dust. Mm. It was just nothing had happened. So, oh, that, we decided we needed showers at this point. So we drove to the Outfitters and um, where they have showers and stuff, and cleaned up. Then we went to town and got food mm-hmm. and because that was the fun part we we had all kinds of food we kept going into town for food it was like a 20 mile drive we didn't care <laughs> um, but then we we got back to the cabin and started working again this was like the fourth day mm-hmm. and we we weren't using computers of course so we're writing by hand and just 
writing like demons. It mm, sounds like bliss. <laughs> it was, and I think part of it was we were kind of nervous, so it made it really easy to write. I know I always write really fast at airports, too, when I'm kind of anxious to get out of there. And mm-hmm. all that. But it worked like that there. And it was bliss, except for the lack of electricity, you know, or even just an old-fashioned typewriter. Mm. Um, because we had to read our writing back after we left the place, and that took a couple nights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so, I think that, that day, oh, 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 um, you, that was the first time the door closed. We um, decided to go for a walk, mm-hmm. and it was kind of stuffy in there, so we propped the door. Alistair found a big old pine cone, and he shoved it in the door and propped it open, but it was lightweight. And um, we, we went for a walk to see if we could find those stone arrows I'd made or mm-hmm. you know, that wood with the carving. Couldn't find a thing, but we were really smart. We, we had a roll of paper towels out of the car, mm-hmm. and we kept putting each paper towel under a rock so we really wouldn't get lost. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't find anything. And um, that was when we found the altar on those fallen trees. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think that was and one of the stories that went with this was that in the back bedroom, the one where the cuckoo was, mm-hmm. and I think this was the 70s story, and who knows if it has any truth whatsoever. A girl was found, maybe she killed herself, maybe she was killed, mm. and there was a pentagram drawn on the floor and stuff. We have no proof, but that was the scuttle. Mm. So this kind of went with that. And fed us. And mm-hmm. so... Yeah. So then we went back to the cabin, and the door was closed. The ca- the pine cone was gone, but it was just a lightweight pine cone. Yeah, yeah but still. <laughs> it was it was it was still creepy, and you know we had, I had to I eventually budge the door open, but it was just it was just weird. It, it's just yeah. that feeling of you know whether it's real or not, that feeling of something not wanting you in there. <laughs> but we still, we worked like crazy after that, again. We did. And and until dinner time. And we didn't even leave for dinner. We made sandwiches because we wanted to hurry. Oh, nice. Yeah. And and we made the big fire, and then we had cocoa, and we worked on the puzzle, and it was starting to get done. It was kind of cool. And then we tried the Ouija again. Okay. And the land, and, and we... We decided we didn't need to be scared because a couple of the lanterns that we changed the batteries on and we had bought fresh batteries actually were working slightly, mm. not just the kerosene. So we decided the, the house was nice and safe. So we right. did that again. And Alistair had an interesting idea, and he should tell you. Okay. My idea? What idea? About the stuff in the suitcase. Oh, right, right. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we wanted to try the Ouija board again, and since it really didn't work last time unless you count the little shifting thing which I think was real but (laughs) (laughs) yes but but I thought because I always saw on TV because I'm the one I don't have any experience with this but but on TV they always go you know get something from the deceased and oh you know so I thought let's go to that suitcase and Mm -hmm. get something out and and, uh, use that and see if we can uh, you know make contact with anybody and uh, the first thing, you know, I did was pull out the blue dress, mm-hmm. the creepy little dress. We were both like, no, that's too creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> almost came out right then and there. Yeah, exactly. It was just too much for me. That dress was creepy. No, it was, it was a child-sized dress? Yes. It was just a tiny little blue dress with white little, it was just 
you know, like kind of old-fashioned looking, just creepy, faded. From the 60s, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Before he was born. Um, <laughs> was, For like a, <laughs> a toddler, a grade schooler? Grade school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, uh, you know, we ended up not doing that. We found like some big chunky, because there was underneath the dress, there was a bunch of uh, uh, costume jewelry. Oh, like. Okay. Yeah, it was a lot like some of the stuff my mom had when I was a kid in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. So I took out some big, chunky rhinestone flower brooch of some sort. Mm -hmm. We decided that was probably, you know, the mother's. If there was a mother, we kind of made up our own little story. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) So we were going to try to, you know, contact her. And we we tried, and sad to say, nothing happened again. Aw. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But it was great. But yeah, nothing happened then, but, but, but. then, that night, that night, we, when we went to bed, we were on our couches, she was on her couch, I was on mine, mm-hmm. and we were starting to fall asleep, and we, that's when we started hearing the scratches. <laughs> on the glass, right yes. over my head, it, it had drapes, it had short drapes, like sort of heavy curtains, these green things, and it wasn't completely closed, and they were open slightly, as we didn't even touch them until then, and there was scratching, like, you know, right on the glass, <laughs> yeah. and I said, Alistair, <laughs> Alistair, and he wakes up, and I'm not daring to move, I'm afraid they're going to see me, and it's can you see out the window <laughs> and so he managed to he worms his way around and gets over to the other window and looks at he can't see a thing mm. yeah. and and it's important to say here that there were you know the first thing you would think is you know oh wind in the trees and trees are moving the, the, yeah. the branches well there was no wind and there were no trees close enough even if there had been it really <sighs> sounded just like a person scratching on the door Later, wind did come up, but this was hours before it did. Mm-hmm. We were up late yeah. that night. Yeah. <laughs> Do tell. Long thirty miles an hour wind, you know, thirty mile an hour winds. It wouldn't matter. There were no trees close enough to do that. Right. They couldn't touch the cabin. It, it had, you know, there was. They're trimmed back, so you know, it's fire hazards. Mm-hmm. I guess. Well, I, so I go and I check, and I don't see anything, and and then it, and then there's this this other you know weird element to it. It's like once you start you know, to go look, it stops. Yeah. You know, so naturally, you know, you assume the worst because I'm aware of it, it stops. It's so aware of me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so it knows I, look, I know. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing there, so I throw and lay back down and it was quiet for a while and then it starts up again and this time it's even a little bit louder. Yeah, that's, and yeah. I was scared, actually. I, I... We both bolted up, right? We really did. <laughs> I actually got scared, and I actually felt mad because I don't like being scared. No. <laughs> we were both swearing. Yeah, I, got, I, got, I, I started thinking, you know, this whole thing was probably some sort of sick joke. So I started having all kinds of thoughts. I'm like, you know, how well, you know, I'm asking Tamara, how well do you know this woman? What do you know? But, I mean, really, this is just... This is just too weird. This, no, no, it wouldn't be her, but it could be local teenagers or something. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and local being like 20 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, 
you know, I, I did. I, I got kind of paranoid and, 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 you know, kind of mad and started thinking that somebody was doing mean things to us. And, uh, you know, Tamara assured me that, you know, she's known LA her whole life and there's just no way that it could be her. And, mm-hmm. But it could be somebody else. It could be somebody else. But there was no evidence of a person, so. Yeah, but no. if you didn't see anybody there. <laughs> Oh. Bear. I hate bears, and, and he was teasing me about bears because I maybe it's a bear. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like you would have been glad it was a bear, and that's how I knew. That's that's part of the reason I started getting really so scared is because <laughs> she's she hates bears, and she said, "Oh, I hope it's a bear." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh my god, we're in deep crap." <laughs> I thought the same thing when I heard that come out of my mouth. <laughs> we'd look outside, and there was nothing there, and we'd hear the. Every time we start to relax a little or get quiet, it would start again. <laughs> so it was like it knew, and we wouldn't see anything. And then I don't, I don't know how much time passed, but um, we wedged one of the sofas up against the front door, and we put a chair under the kitchen doorknob uh-huh. and made sure everything was closed up. And and then we just we put our sleeping bags on the spot on the floor in front of the fireplace where. Nobody could really see us through the couches or anything, and we just kind of sat there with pieces of firewood in our hands to to bash whatever it was. (laughs) Because, now, the wind did come up that night, but tell her, Alistair, tell her about all the noises all night. They were everywhere. It was, and basically, you know, we we would hear, the, the most thing that we heard was scratching, and it seemed to be, at the windows. Um, also, it seemed to come from the door. Yeah, it. right on the front door, this scritch, scritch, that, scritch. Oh, that, no. that, Yeah, it was pretty creepy. I kept thinking of, like, you know, Salem's Lot when that yeah. Yeah. voice was at the hospital window. It wasn't quite that bad, but, it, you know. That's the hook is outside waiting for you. <laughs> Everything. And but so, we telling ourselves it was humans. Yeah, or, or you know, there was still the hope that was there. <laughs> no rodents of some sort because yeah, but it was it was pretty much all night long. I think I think we both kind of slept somewhere in between sleeping and waking all night. You know because uh. every every little noise that I would hear, I would just I was just wide awake, and it went on on and off pretty much all night long. Uh. Yeah, at dawn. Sounded that really deliberate sound to it, and that's what creeped me out. It wasn't. It was, yeah. It didn't sound really random. It sounded deliberate, and that it, that freaked me out. Oh my! That was the worst. And I, it sounds weird that we could sleep at all, but it, we were exhausted, mm-hmm. and it was just sort of this state where you're not really awake or asleep. Yeah, you're almost mm-hmm. numb at that point, and oh. it just we were locked in the cabin. It yeah. was, you know, like a fiction story. It was hysterically funny after the fact. <laughs> but um, at dawn, we, we did fall asleep for a couple hours, so we weren't totally screwed up. Okay. Yeah, after, after we, after we uh, got up for a while, we went back to bed. And um, we, let's see, we got up, we started working again. We mm-hmm. went outside. We, oh, we went outside and I, oh. this was me. Uh, this is really creepy and funny. Yeah, so I brought I brought um, a copy of Twilight because I thought that <laughs> it would be funny to, to, to make Tam, to read to Tamara from you know passages from Twilight because I know she's such a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we decided to, to prop the door open and, and, and 
go for a walk and I put the, the book in mm. the door, mm-hmm. to, you know, to and he did it well this time, not like the pine cone. Right, yeah. It's a little more substantial than a pine cone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we, when we went and looked around, we just went and looked around. We, we looked for footprints and things and yeah. tire tracks, but there had been some wind by morning. There was nothing. Uh-huh. And, yeah. and we realized the owner had a teenage son, so it could have been him and his friends, or maybe mm. somebody homeless messing with us. We just didn't know. You know, something that weird all night long. And no giggles. No giggles. Yeah, no, Nothing. it was not funny, whatever it was. It, it like I said, it felt so like, deliberate, and, yeah. and, and it, yeah, it was not trying to be funny, it didn't feel like. <laughs> yeah, it was like Wendigo's, I can't ever say that right, Wendigo stories. That, uh-huh. when, yeah, yeah. Things like that, it, you know, out in the woods and the elements, and it just, you know, maybe it was in, I know that rodent noises and things like that can become incredibly loud. I had a field mouse in my bedroom off a sleeping bag when I was a kid, and I swore there was something the size of a giant rat in there walking around. <laughs> and that was just a little itty-bitty tiny field mouse. Mm-hmm. And so we know that can happen, but it sure was deliberate mm. and scary. It gives me, it's making the hairs rise on me thinking about it now. Oh, yeah. So, so then, we, then we decided to go back in, right, and... Uh, don't see anything we decide to go back in and the door shut and the twilight book is gone and swear to god i swear to god the twilight book we never saw again i have no idea i, I still joke about it i'm like the twilight loving ghost i don't know yeah. <laughs> the book is gone i we never saw it again and the door was jammed shut again so so you know i had some pretty sore shoulders by the time this was all said and done but we got the door open <laughs> It was just out of plumb, I guess, because, you know, the key wouldn't open it either. It wasn't locked. I tried the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was, and we looked all over for the book several times. Yeah. Never Amazing. found the book. So we got inside, and, and Tamara says, let's, you know, salt it again. So we go through, and there was a few dishes there, like up on the uh, highest shelf. There was, like, a couple little plates and some coffee cups or whatever. And so mm-hmm. we took, you know, the salt and redid it on the... Oh, we had we hadn't actually salted the cabin yet. We were only salting. And I think we'd salted, like, the doorway to... That's what you're talking about. We'd salted the doorway to the creepy room that night that we were so afraid of it. Ooh. Yeah. But that was, hadn't, hadn't done everywhere until now. We did all the doorways and all the windowsills. Um, you know, everything felt better except for that That, that front bedroom was never... That, that place always felt a little bit creepy to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And it was too joked you know we should just put the food in the front bedroom and then we don't need to go get ice it was, yeah. it, was cold. <laughs> it really was after the first day it oh my colder and colder mm. yeah it's weird but i always think of cold spots sort of as energy drains and this if that's the right thing to think of this was one giant energy drain mm. yeah and it was creepy oh but we had the puzzle alistair yeah and we went so back she, in she'd been working on the puzzle a lot more than me i don't have the patience for puzzles too much but she made pretty good progress on it and uh this was when you know after we got inside we salted the place we worked for a while and said you know let's go for a walk you know um we did hear a bird and uh this was before we went we, we heard another bird noise and we thought maybe it could be the cuckoo clock we didn't know so we were like by then we were just like i don't even i don't even care anymore yeah. i just <laughs> Forget it. It's a bird. <laughs> even, if it, even if it was the clock, we're going to go there and stare at it, and it's just going to sit there. So who cares? You know? <laughs> we were also really taken up on chunk food at this point. <laughs> so, so we went. Just the sugar talking. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. 
so we went for another walk and um we got back and the door was stuck again it wasn't as bad as uh usual but it was stuck we didn't mm-hmm. prop it open with anything but still it was stuck we got in and the puzzle and the potato chips and the soda cans were everywhere yeah. oh. <gasps> and so 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 this of course Tamara says you know squirrels and I said ghosts <laughs> 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 so, you know, squirrels I really <laughs> I, uh, I, I really I really felt something um, creepy at this point. It, it, I, you know, again, going back to that feeling, you know, when you sense someone, you know, it's just, it's just a certain sense that you have. Mm-hmm. It's like we walked in and I, I just felt it. I'm like, somebody's been in here. It mm-hmm. was just. I felt that too, but I because it was potato chips and we hadn't left food out before. We'd always put it back in the hamper. Mm-hmm. I just thought, okay, we left the doors open. There's critters in here. We know they were in the walls anyway, at least the first night. Yeah. So, you know, raccoons, squirrels, whatever. Mm. And if we hadn't had the food out, though, I would be whistling a different tune. <laughs> I choose yeah. to think it was critters, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it could have been, but it, it, it could have been. I mean, there's, been. No, there's no way of knowing, you know. But we cleaned everything up, and yeah, this was my idea. I was really proud of it myself i was feeling really brave at this point i said you know let's do the ouija board one more time mm-hmm. and let's do it in the front bedroom <gasps> you know this was okay. like the night where we left and we'd already salted the place so or we yeah. were planning on leaving i should say mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah he said that and i was shocked yeah and i was up for it <laughs> yeah, i was i was feeling brave for some reason probably just because you know i'm like you know either do it or don't you know what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> Oh, My attitude's always like, when are you going to be back to do it the next time? Right. And if you don't know, yeah, just exactly. go ahead and do it now. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to wait, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, again, you know, nothing happened with the Ouija board. I don't know. I guess I just didn't... Just not, nothing happened with it. But that was when the room got really creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, even creepier. Mm-hmm. It got really, really creepy. And I started feeling really like, you know, I just, I just want to get out of here. I'm done. I mean, it got the dark. The, yeah, we had light, and it got dark. Yeah, it started getting the room literally darkened. I mean, have you ever seen that, Sylvia? I have. I have. I was um, real quick. I was in the basement of the um, oh, some great big creepy place in Alton, Illinois. And we were in the basement. That was the only place in the house that we were allowed to go in. And the medium had all of us sitting around, and she said, we were lights out. And yeah. she said, okay, now this this spirit is going to join us, and when he does, the room's going to get darker. I'm like, oh, I call bullshit. We're, we're in the dark already. I mean, how can it be darker than dark? And she said, all right, well, he's here. And I kid you not, that blackness became thicker and more black. Yeah. So, yes, I know exactly what you mean when you say the room darkened. I had a darken in a place before that. that had, we had bright fluorescence on in a haunted place, mm-hmm. and when it started up, it darkened despite the fluorescence. They stayed bright. But it was that same thing that you saw. It terrifying. Yeah, yeah it's really unnerving. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So that yeah, happened in the room where you were doing the, the front bedroom when you were doing the uh, Ouija board. 
Yeah, and then it spread. Oh. Yeah, and it, it did. And, and this was, I've never seen anything like this at all. It was, and so now I, I'm glad because I don't have to explain it to you the same way, but it, it just, yeah. it's like the air, the atmosphere got thick. Yeah. And then we heard something. He should tell you. Yes. Tell me. Then, yeah. <laughs> then, then we heard a click and a, and a slam. Was the front door? Yeah. The so, front door that would always the, stick. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> door opened and slammed shut, and, and that was when I I, I, I was done. <laughs> yeah, we went to the doorway, you know, to the living room, and peered out and didn't see anything. And we walked out there, and and it's like it's getting darker. It's getting residual in there too. Residual. It's getting darker in there. The, the even though we have the kerosene lantern, which was pretty bright, mm-hmm. and the fire was on. And then Alistair says the thing, there's no one, I say there's no one there, and he says. <laughs> it just occurred to me, yeah. I'm like, well, if nobody came in, maybe somebody walked out. Oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it just flew out of my mouth before I could think about it, because I'm like, well, nobody's in here, somebody probably walked out. And then oh, I was like, oh my geez. God, we've got to get out of here. <laughs> Unfortunately, almost everything was already in the car because we packed up that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just grabbed our stuff. Oh, and wasn't there... What else happened? There was... We stayed in there a few minutes in the living room, right? Because we'd never had trouble there. Yeah. But it changed. Minutes and and mm. you basically said, okay, this is this is where the best, you know, writing comes from. Yeah. You yes. know, sit down and, and close your eyes and just feel... <sighs> You know, feel the atmosphere, feel the, you know, emotional charge of the room. Sure. Let your mind go. Yeah. yeah. And and we did. And and it got really creepy. It was just a really eerie feeling. That's when it really started, you know, really feeling thick. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like charged, like like electrically. It was, it was it just. It was. It was just unreal. And then. So, yeah. Well, we just got our stuff and left. <laughs> we got, there was one more noise. Remember? That's what made us run. There was really loud knocking. Inside, it sounded like. Near us. We couldn't see from where, but it was on the wall, like pounding, knock, 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 you know, real, like yeah. much deeper than me hammering on my computer. Uh-huh. Yes. It sounded like somebody took a fist and was hitting the door, except for it wasn't really coming from the door. I don't have any idea where it was coming from, but that was in the middle of our, you know, let's absorb the atmosphere and really remember this. <laughs> written off the door slam you know and i've been the the place where i had lived in my early 20s where Mm -hmm. there was the the sound of footsteps and all that Mm -hmm. that had that door slam and nothing had moved so i he knew that story already i told him earlier in the week and it was already no it didn't really move we just heard the noise it's a residual (laughs) let me sit here and absorb the atmosphere just a little more (laughs) and then and it was yeah i think it was just three or four really loud hits and that's when, yeah, I mean, we were just on our feet. And we didn't even say anything. You started grabbing what you could. Yeah. I put the fire out. We just, and we were gone. Yeah, it was like, we got in the car, and I said, we can be at the coast in two or three hours. And we drove. Oh, man. <laughs> we did. It was great. It was. Wow. Looking back on it, it was great. And, and it, was, uh, it was a really good experience. But um, it definitely opened my eyes, you know, because... I didn't really expect anything. I just, you know, who knows? Uh-huh. But it was creepy. Oh, fantastic. 
Wow. What a great set of stories. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, we lived to tell them. <laughs> Too uh, cool. The worst part of it was is we got back and I'm thinking, I wish we wouldn't have done so much writing because then we had to put it all under the computer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was definitely creepy. We never you know, we never could say for sure what you know was no. going on or whether yeah, how do you gave say a report and yeah, how do you yeah. say, well, it's definitely haunted, or no, it's not, or we think, or mm-hmm. we felt. Yeah, we couldn't say for sure, but we said you need to have a geologist come in. There's probably something, you know, on the land that's that's making it worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, otherwise we were kind of, uh, and we said, you know, we'll talk to you again. And no, we don't want to hear anything until we talk to you again. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And, you know, the further you get away from it, you know, the further I get away from it, the the more I have rationalized all of these things. But the one thing that I try to hold on to is that feeling, that that knowing at a cellular level that you are not alone. Yeah. Sure. Oh. Yeah, I know you know what that feels like, too. Yeah. been in a few of those, and I know you have, Sylvia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing like it, is there? Oh, there isn't. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> it is. I like it. I I'm one of those weirdos, I guess. Okay, so if people want to read the entire story, all, all of these blog posts, what's an easy way for them to get to the blog posts? Oh, um... The fastest way would be to go to either one of our websites, because our website's... Yours, Alistair, yours, yours has the best. Oh, we both have links to it, but you yeah. actually okay. yeah, have it on your website. Yeah. yeah. I have on my website, which is alistaircross.com. I actually have a... a a link that goes directly just to the haunted cabin stories and it's the link that it says haunted cabin so you click on that and you'll go straight to it and uh, yeah i think that's where i that that's the way i got to it yeah and that's a l i s t a i r cross.com for any everyone who's listening yes Okay. Tamarthorns is just tamarthorn.com, and she's got uh, her stuff together too. And anything you need to find, you'll find there. Yeah. Yeah, but this is the best way to get directly to the thing. Cool, cool. And speaking of finding things, tell us about Grandma's Rack. Woo! Um, it will be out this fall. We've written it. Now we're letting it sit while we write something else. Cool. And then we'll go back to it and, and do the rewrite. And it's a horror story. It's our first collaboration. And now we're working on our second and third simultaneously. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. Like together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll, again, that's, that's more stuff you can find um, on our website. It'll be out yeah. later this year. And... Um, we also have uh, paranormally inclined, serialized erotic novel coming. Well, it's serialization, so a series of installments coming out uh, in ebook starting this summer. So that will actually be out first. Okay. Yeah, a lot of dark shadows in there and a lot of sex. Yeah. It's yeah. called Belinda. All righty. Yeah. Very so cool. That's, yeah. Grandma's Rack is about witches and wars and. You'll see that if you just check either of our websites. It, it explains yeah. it. Or okay. Facebook pages. And it's all there. Wonderful. 
All right. Well, I cannot tell you guys what a treat this has been for me. Thank you so much for gracing my little lights out show with your presence. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. We really enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Good. Love your show. Yes, it's great. It's great. Thank you. Hey. Yeah. Cool. And I still had the recorder going when you said that, so that's pretty awesome. (laughs) Haven't turned the recorder off yet. (laughs) So, folks, what do you think? Was the cabin haunted? Or were those woods inhabited only by very ambitious squirrels? I encourage you to read Tamara's and Alistair's blog postings of their adventures. The best way to find them is to visit each author's website, TamaraThorn.com, that's Thorn with an E, and AlistairCross.com, A-L-I-S-T-A-I-R-Cross.com. And if you'd like to leave me your comments on this show, please visit me on Facebook at Fractured Spirits or at Ghosts of the Illinois River. I can't resist sharing one more Tamara story. When I finished writing Fractured Spirits, I went in search of people to say nice things about it. Tamara kindly wrote a lovely blurb for the book, which read, in part, I consider this book a must-read if you're into stalking spirits. It's open-minded, full of wit, and loaded with information. I hope Schultz, who exhibits an innate understanding of this field, writes many more of these books because I want to read them all. Those words meant a great deal to me, and I thought they were well chosen, because, after all, I've read everything that she has written. Thank you so much for joining me. This is a very special show for me, and I hope you enjoyed it even half as much as I did. Do look up Alistair's and Tamara's work. Trust me, you'll be glad you did. And you can always find my books at darkcontinents.com. Keep an eye out for Grandma's Rack, coming soon from Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Next time on Lights Out, we're going to be looking at what it's like to live in a haunted house. I hope you'll join me next time we go Lights Out. Thank you, Sylvia and friends. You know, the closest I've come to an experience such as that was was way back in 1966 when a parcel of us students and professors spent some time in the Pennsylvania mountains in an antebellum cabin that had been a station on the underground rail... No. No, no. No. No time. Too much to cover. But... Remind me later. Yes? Yes. At all events, I recommend you stop by Tamara and Alistair's web presences at, well, at TamaraThorne.com, that's Thorne, T-H-O-R-N-E with an E, and AlistairCross.com. They'll be on the Tales to Terrify homepage. And... 
Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. On our Facebook page as well. Sylvia's URL will be there too. And now, fiction. Tonight, we'll hear part three of William Hope Hodgson's novel, House on the Borderland, if you have missed parts one and two, well, shame on you. You go back and listen to them. Listen to them on the tales archives. Go on. We'll wait. Just for you. Or, failing that, here's yet another previously on segment that will give you the basics of what has happened, but without the chill terror of having snuggled with a chum in the dark as Nick whispered, all the horrors to your ears. While on a fishing trip to Ireland, two friends have found the moldering journal of an unnamed man they call simply the recluse. This was found in the ruins of a strange circular stone house, a huge place. The journal records the final days of the recluse before the destruction of the house. This recluse, his sister, and faithful dog, Pepper, live in what apparently is a place shunned by the locals who believe it was built by the devil. The recluse writes that he has begun this journal to record the strange happenings that have begun taking place in and around the house. First, he relates a vision in which he travels through what seems to be interstellar space and arrives at a vast arena, the Plain of Silence, as he calls it, surrounded by mountains with representations of mythological beast gods, demons, and other bestial horrors on their slopes. After this vision of the arena and of a gigantic pig-like humanoid creature, the man becomes fascinated with the pit adjacent to his house and begins to explore it. He is soon attacked by man-sized creatures that he calls 
the swine things. These appear to have their origins somewhere in the depths of a great chasm found under the house, accessed through a pit on the far side of the gardens. The struggle with these creatures lasts for several nights of greater and greater ferocity. In the end, the man kills several of the swine things and apparently drives them off. As he searches for the origin of the swine things, he explores a pit in the garden where the local river ends and flows underground. There he finds a tunnel that leads to a great chasm under the house. When rock slides dam the water in the pit, trapping the man, his dog, Pepper, rescues him. Good dog. Here now is part three of William Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderland. Chapter 13 The Trap in the Great Cellar I suppose I must have swooned, for the next thing I remember I opened my eyes and all was dusk. I was lying on my back with one leg doubled under the other, and Pepper was licking my ears. I felt horribly stiff, and my leg was numb from the knee downward. For a few minutes I lay thus in a dazed condition. Then slowly I struggled to a sitting position and looked about me. It had stopped raining, but the trees still dripped dismally. From the pit came a continuous murmur of running water. I felt cold and shivery. My clothes were sodden and I ached all over. Very slowly the life came back into my numbed leg, and, after a little, I essayed to stand up. This I managed at the second attempt, but I was very tottery and peculiarly weak. It seemed to me that I was going to be ill, and I made shift to stumble my way toward the house. My steps were erratic, and my head confused. At each step that I took, sharp pain shot through my limbs. I had gone perhaps some thirty paces when a cry from Pepper drew my attention, and I turned stiffly toward him. The old dog was trying to follow me, but could come no further owing to the rope with which I had hauled him up, being still tied round his body, the other end not having been unfastened from the tree. For a moment I fumbled with the knots, weakly, but they were wet and hard and I could do nothing. Then I remembered my knife and in a minute the rope was cut. How I reached the house I scarcely know, and of the days that followed I remember still less. Of one thing I am certain, that... 
had it not been for my sister's untiring love and nursing, I had not been writing at this moment. When I recovered my senses, it was to find that I had been in bed for nearly two weeks. Yet another week passed before I was strong enough to totter out into the gardens. Even then, I was not able to walk so far as the pit. I would have liked to ask my sister how high the water had risen, but felt it was wiser not to mention the subject to her. Indeed, since then I have made a rule never to speak to her about the strange things that happen in this great old house. It was not until a couple of days later that I managed to get across to the pit. There I found that in my few weeks' absence there had been wrought a wondrous change. Instead of the three parts filled ravine, I looked out upon a great lake, whose placid surface reflected the light coldly. The water had risen to within half a dozen feet of the pit edge. Only in one part was the lake disturbed, and that was above the place where, far down under the silent waters, yawned the entrance to the vast underground pit. Here there was a continuous bubbling, and occasionally a curious sort of sobbing gurgle would find its way up from the depths. Beyond these there was nothing to tell of the things that were hidden beneath. As I stood there, it came to me how wonderfully things had worked out. The entrance to the place whence the swine creatures had come was sealed up by a power that made me feel there was nothing more to fear from them. And yet, with the feeling, there was a sensation that now I should never learn anything further of the place from which those dreadful things had come. It was completely shut off and concealed from human curiosity forever. Strange, in the knowledge of that underground hellhole, how apposite had been the naming of the pit. One wonders how it originated and when. Naturally, one concludes that the shape and depth of the ravine would suggest the name Pit. Yet it is not possible that it has, all along, held a deeper significance, a hint, could one but have guessed, of the greater, more stupendous pit that lies far down in the earth beneath this old house. Under this house... Even now the idea is strange and terrible to me, for I have proved beyond doubt that the pit yawns right below the house, which is evidently supported somewhere above the centre of it upon a tremendous arched roof of solid rock. It happened in this wise that, having occasion to go down to the cellars, the thought occurred to me to pay a visit to the great vault, where the trap is situated, and see whether everything was as I had left it. Reaching the place, I walked slowly up the centre until I came to the trap. There it was, with the stones piled upon it, just as I had seen it last. I had a lantern with me, and the idea came to me that now would be a good time to investigate whatever lay under the great oak slab. Placing the lantern on the floor, I tumbled the stones off the trap, and, grasping the ring, pulled the door open. As I did so, the cellar became filled with the sound of a murmurous thunder that rose from far below. At the same time a damp wind blew up into my face, bringing with it a load of fine spray. Therewith I dropped the trap hurriedly with a half-frightened feeling of wonder. For a moment I stood puzzled. I was not particularly afraid. The haunting fear of the swine things had left me long ago. But I was certainly nervous and astonished. Then a sudden thought possessed me, and I raised the ponderous door with a feeling of excitement. Leaving
leaving it standing upon its end, I seized the lantern, and, kneeling down, thrust it into the opening. As I did so, the moist wind and spray drove in my eyes, making me unable to see for a few moments. Even when my eyes were clear, I could distinguish nothing below me, save darkness and whirling spray. Seeing that it was useless to expect to make out anything with the light so high, I felt in my pockets for a piece of twine with which to lower it further into the opening. Even as I fumbled, the lantern slipped from my fingers and hurtled down into the darkness. For a brief instant I watched its fall, and saw the light shine on a tumult of white foam some eighty or a hundred feet below me. Then it was gone. My sudden surmise was correct, and now I knew the cause of the wet and noise. The great cellar was connected with the pit by means of a trap which opened right above it, and the moisture was the spray rising from the water falling into the depths. In an instant I had an explanation of certain things that had hereto puzzled me. Now I could understand why the noises on the first night of the invasion had seemed to rise directly from under my feet, and the chuckle that had sounded when I first opened the trap. Evidently some of the swine things must have been right beneath me. Another thought struck me. Were the creatures all drowned? Would they drown? I remembered how unable I had been to find any traces to show that my shooting had been really fatal. Had they life as we understand life, or were they ghouls? These thoughts flashed through my brain as I stood in the dark, searching my pockets for matches. I had the box in my hand now, and striking a light I stepped to the trap door and closed it. Then I piled the stones back upon it, after which I made my way out of the cellars. And so, I suppose the water goes on, thundering down into that bottomless hell-pit. Sometimes I have an inexplicable desire to go down to the great cellar, open the trap and gaze into the impenetrable spray-damp darkness. At times the desire becomes almost overpowering in its intensity. It is not mere curiosity that prompts me, but more as though some unexplained influence was still at work. Still, I never go, and intend to fight down the strange longing and crush it, even as I would the unholy thought of self-destruction. This idea of some intangible force being exerted may seem reasonless, yet my instinct warns me that it is not so. In these things reason seems to me less to be trusted than instinct. One thought there is, in closing, that impresses itself upon me, with ever-growing insistence. It is that I live in a very strange house, a very awful house, and I have begun to wonder whether I am doing wisely in staying here. Yet, if I left, where could I go, and still obtain the solitude and the sense of her presence that alone makes my old life bearable? Chapter 14 The Sea of Sleep for a considerable period after the last incident which I have narrated in my diary, I had serious thoughts of leaving this house, and might have done so, but for the great and wonderful thing of which I am about to write. How well I was advised in my heart when I stayed on here, spite of those visions and sights of unknown and unexplainable things, for had I not stayed, then I had not seen again the face of her I loved.' 
Yes, though few know it. None now save my sister Mary I have loved and... Ah, me, lost. I would write down the story of those sweet old days, but it would be like the tearing of old wounds. Yet, after that which has happened, what need have I to care? For she has come to me out of the unknown. Strangely, she warned me, warned me passionately against this house, begged me to leave it, but admitted, when I questioned her, that she could not have come to me had I been elsewhere. Yet in spite of this, still she warned me, earnestly, telling me that it was a place long ago given over to evil, and under the power of grim laws of which none here have knowledge. And I... I just asked her again whether she would come to me elsewhere, and she could only stand silent. It was thus that I came to the place of the Sea of Sleep. So she termed it in her dear speech with me. I had stayed up in my study reading and must have dozed over the book. Suddenly I awoke and sat upright with a start. For a moment I looked round with the puzzled sense of something unusual. There was a misty look about the room, giving a curious softness to each table and chair and furnishing. Gradually the mistiness increased, growing, as it were, out of nothing. Then slowly a soft white light began to glow in the room. The flames of the candle shone through it, palely. I looked from side to side and found that I could still see each piece of furniture, but in a strangely unreal way, more as though the ghost of each table and chair had taken the place of the solid article. Gradually as I looked I saw them fade and fade, until slowly they resolved into nothingness. Now I looked again at the candles. They shone wanly, and even as I watched grew more unreal, and so vanished. The room was filled now with a soft yet luminous white twilight, like a gentle mist of light. Beyond this I could see nothing. Even the walls had vanished. Presently I became conscious that a faint, continuous sound pulsed through the silence that wrapped me. I listened intently. It grew more distinct until it appeared to me that I had harked to the breathings of some great sea. I cannot tell how long a space passed thus, but after a while it seemed that I could see through the mistiness, and slowly I became aware that I was standing upon the shore of an immense and silent sea. This shore was smooth and long, vanishing to the right and left of me in extreme distances. In front swam a still immensity of sleeping ocean. At times it seemed to me that I caught a faint glimmer of light under its surface, but of this I could not be sure. Behind me rose up to an extraordinary height gaunt black cliffs. Overhead the sky was of a uniform cold grey colour, the whole place being lit by a stupendous globe of pale fire that swam a little above the far horizon and shed a foam-like light above the quiet waters. Beyond the gentle murmur of the sea, an intense stillness prevailed. For a long while I stayed there, looking out across its strangeness. Then as I stared it seemed that a bubble of white foam floated up out of the depths, and then, even now I know not how it was, I was looking upon... Nay, looking into the face of her. I, into her face, into her soul. And she looked back at me, 
with such a commingling of joy and sadness that I ran toward her blindly, crying strangely to her in a very agony of remembrance, of terror and of hope to come to me. Yet, in spite of my crying, she stayed out there upon the sea and only shook her head sorrowfully. But in her eyes was the old earth light of tenderness that I had come to know before all things ere we were parted. At her perverseness I grew desperate and essayed to wade out to her. Yet, though I would, I could not. Something, some invisible barrier held me back, and I was fain to stay where I was and cry out to her in the fullness of my soul. Oh, my darling, my darling! But could say no more, for very intensity. And at that she came over swiftly and touched me, and it was as though heaven had opened. Yet when I reached out my hands to her, she put me from her with tenderly stern hands, and I was abashed. The Fragments the legible portions of the mutilated leaves. Through tears, noise of eternity in my ears we parted. She whom I love, oh my God! I was a great time dazed, and then I was alone in the blackness of the night. I knew that I journeyed back once more to the known universe. Presently I emerged from that enormous darkness. I had come among the stars... Vast time, the sun far and remote. I entered into the gulf that separates our system from the outer suns. As I sped across the dividing dark, I watched steadily the ever-growing brightness and size of our sun. Once I glanced back to the stars and saw them shift, as it were, in my wake, against the mighty background of night, so vast was the speed of my passing spirit. I drew nigher to our system, and now I could see the shine of Jupiter. Later I distinguished the cold blue gleam of the earthlight. I had a moment of bewilderment. All about the sun there seemed to be bright objects moving in rapid orbits. Inward, nigh to the savage glory of the sun, there circled two darting points of light, and further off there flew a blue shining speck that I knew to be the earth. It circled the sun in a space that seemed to be no more than an earth minute. Nearer with great speed, I saw the radiances of Jupiter and Saturn spinning with incredible swiftness in huge orbits, and ever I drew more nigh and looked out upon this strange sight, the visible circling of the planets about the Mother Sun. It was as though time had been annihilated for me, so that a year was no more to my unflesh spirit than it is a moment to an earthbound soul. The speed of the planets appeared to increase, and presently I was watching the sun, all ringed about with hair-like circles of different coloured fire, the paths of the planets hurtling at mighty speed about the central flame. The sun grew vast as though it leapt to meet me, and now I was within the circle of the outer planets and flitting swiftly toward the place where the earth glimmered through the blue splendour of its orbit as though a fiery mist circled the sun at a monstrous speed. Chapter 15 The Noise in the Night 
And now I come to the strangest of all the strange happenings that have befallen me in this house of mysteries. It occurred quite lately within the month, and I have little doubt but what I saw was in reality the end of all things. However, to my story. I do not know how it is, but up to the present I have never been able to write these things down directly they happened. It is as though I have to wait a time, recovering my balance and digesting, as it were, the things I have heard or seen. No doubt this is as it should be, for by waiting I see the incidents more truly, and write of them in a calmer and more judicial frame of mind. This, by the way. It is now the end of November. My story relates to what happened in the first week of the month. It was night, about eleven o'clock. Pepper and I kept one another company in the study, that great old room of mine where I read and work. I was reading, curiously enough, the Bible. I have begun, in these later days, to take a growing interest in that great and ancient book. Suddenly a distinct tremor shook the house, and there came a faint and distant whirring buzz that grew rapidly into a far, muffled scream. It reminded me, in a queer, gigantic way, of the noise that a clock makes when the catch is released and it is allowed to run down. The sound appeared to come from some remote height, somewhere up in the night. There was no repetition of the shock. I looked across at Pepper. He was sleeping peacefully. Gradually the whirring noise decreased, and there came a long silence. All at once a glow lit up the end window, which protrudes far out from the side of the house, so that from it one may look both east and west. I felt puzzled, and after a moment's hesitation walked across the room and pulled aside the blind. As I did so, I saw the sun rise from behind the horizon. It rose with a steady, perceptible movement. I could see it travel upward. In a minute it seemed that it had reached the tops of the trees through which I had watched it. Up, up. It was broad daylight now. Behind me I was conscious of a sharp, mosquito-like buzzing. I glanced round and knew that it came from the clock. Even as I looked, it marked off an hour. The minute hand was moving round the dial faster than an ordinary second hand. The hour hand moved quickly from space to space. I had a numb sense of astonishment. A moment later, so it seemed, the two candles went out almost together. I turned swiftly back to the window, for I had seen the shadow of the window frames travelling along the floor toward me, as though a great lamp had been carried up past the window. I saw now that the sun had risen high into the heavens, and was still visibly moving. It passed above the house with an extraordinary sailing kind of motion. As the window came into shadow, I saw another extraordinary thing. The fine weather clouds were not passing easily across the sky. They were scampering, as though a hundred mile an hour wind blew. As they passed, they changed their shapes a thousand times a minute, as though writhing with a strange life, and so were gone. And presently others came and whisked away likewise. To the west I saw the sun drop with an incredible smooth, swift motion. Eastward the shadows of every seen thing crept toward the coming greyness, and the movement of the shadows was visible to me, a stealthy, writhing creep of the shadows of the wind-stirred trees. It was a strange sight. Quickly the room began to darken, 
The sun slid down to the horizon and seemed, as it were, to disappear from my sight almost with a jerk. Through the greyness of the swift evening I saw the silver crescent of the moon falling out of the southern sky toward the west. The evening seemed to merge into an almost instant night. Above me the many constellations passed in a strange, noiseless circling westward. The moon fell through the last fathoms of the night gulf, and there was only the starlight. About this time the buzzing in the corner ceased, telling me that the clock had run down. A few minutes passed and I saw the eastward sky lighten. A grey, sullen morning spread through all the darkness and hid the march of the stars. Overhead there moved with a heavy, everlasting rolling a vast, seamless sky of grey clouds, a cloud sky that would have seemed motionless through all the length of an ordinary earth day. The sun was hidden from me, but from moment to moment the world would brighten and darken, brighten and darken, beneath waves of subtle light and shadow. The light shifted ever westward, and the night fell upon the earth. A vast rain seemed to come with it, and a wind of a most extraordinary loudness, as though the howling of a night-long gale were packed into the space of no more than a minute. This noise passed almost immediately, and the clouds broke, so that once more I could see the sky. The stars were flying westward with astounding speed. It came to me now for the first time that, though the noise of the wind had passed, yet a constant blurred sound was in my ears. Now that I noticed it, I was aware that it had been with me all the time. It was the world noise. And then, even as I grasped at so much comprehension, there came the eastward light. No more than a few heartbeats and the sun rose swiftly. Through the trees I saw it, and then it was above the trees. Up, up it soared, and all the world was light. It passed with a swift, steady swing to its highest altitude and fell thence, westward. I saw the days roll visibly over my head. A few light clouds flittered northward and vanished. The sun went down with one swift, clear plunge, and there was about me for a few seconds the darker, growing grey of the gloaming. Southward and westward, the moon was sinking rapidly. The night had come already. A minute, it seemed, and the moon fell those remaining fathoms of dark sky. Another minute or so, and the eastward sky glowed with the coming dawn. The sun leapt upon me with a frightening abruptness and soared ever more swiftly towards the zenith. Then, suddenly, a fresh thing came to my sight. A black thundercloud rushed out of the south and seemed to leap all the arc of the sky in a single instant. As it came, I saw that its advancing edge flapped like a monstrous black cloth in the heaven, twirling and undulating rapidly with a horrid suggestiveness. In an instant all the air was full of rain, and a hundred lightning flashes seemed to flood downward, as if it were in one great shower. In the same second of time the world noise was drowned in the roar of the wind, and then my ears ached under the stunning impact of the thunder. And in the midst of this storm the night came, and then within the space of another minute the storm had passed, and there was only the constant blur of the world noise on my hearing. Overhead the stars were sliding quickly westward, and something, mayhaps the particular speed to which they had attained, brought home to me, for the first time, a keen realisation of the knowledge that it was the world that revolved. 
I seemed to see, suddenly, the world, a vast, dark mass, revolving visibly against the stars. The dawn and the sun seemed to come together, so greatly had the speed of the world revolution increased. The sun drove up in one long, steady curve, passing its highest point, and swept down into the western sky and disappeared. I was scarcely conscious of evening, so brief was it. Then I was watching the flying constellations and the westward hastening moon. In but a space of seconds, so it seemed, it was sliding swiftly downward through the night blue, and then was gone, and almost directly came the morning. And now there seemed to come a strange acceleration. The sun made one clean, clear sweep through the sky and disappeared behind the western horizon, and the night came and went with a like haste. As the succeeding day opened and closed upon the world, I was aware of a sweat of snow suddenly upon the earth. The night came, and almost immediately the day. In the brief leap of the sun, I saw that the snow had vanished, and then, once more, it was night. Thus matters were, and even after the many incredible things that I have seen, I experienced all the time a most profound awe. To see the sun rise and set within a space of time to be measured by seconds, to watch, after a little, the moon leap, a pale and ever-growing orb, up into the night sky and glide with a strange swiftness through the vast arc of blue, and presently to see the sun follow, springing out of the eastern sky as though in chase, and then again the night with the swift and ghostly passing of starry constellations was all too much to view believingly. Yet so it was. The day, slipping from dawn to dusk, and the night sliding swiftly into day, ever rapidly and more rapidly. The last three passages of the sun had shown me a snow-covered earth, which at night had seemed, for a few seconds, incredibly weird under the fast-shifting light of the soaring and falling moon. Now, however, for a little space, the sky was hidden, by a sea of swaying leaden-white clouds which lightened and blackened alternately with the passage of day and night. The clouds rippled and vanished, and there was once more before me the vision of the swiftly leaping sun and nights that came and went like shadows. Faster and faster spun the world, and now each day and night was completed with the space of but a few seconds, and still the speed increased. It was a little later that I noticed that the sun had begun to have the suspicion of a trail of fire behind it. This was due, evidently, to the speed at which it apparently traversed the heavens, and as the days sped, each one quicker than the last, the sun began to assume the appearance of a vast flaming comet flaring across the sky at short periodic intervals. At night, the moon presented with much greater truth the comet-like aspect, a pale and singularly clear, fast-travelling shape of fire trailing streaks of cold flame. The stars showed me now merely as fine hairs of fire against the dark. Once I turned from the window and glanced at Pepper. In the flash of a day I saw that he slept quietly, and I moved once more to my watching. 
The sun was now bursting up from the eastern horizon like a stupendous rocket, seeming to occupy no more than a second or two in hurling from east to west. I could no longer perceive the passage of clouds across the sky, which seemed to have darkened somewhat. The brief nights appeared to have lost the proper darkness of night, so that the hair-like fire of the flying stars showed but dimly. As the speed increased, the sun began to sway very slowly in the sky from south to north, and then slowly again from north to south. So, amid a strange confusion of mind, the hours passed. All this while had Pepper slept. Presently, feeling lonely and distraught, I called to him softly, but he took no notice. Again I called, raising my voice slightly. Still he moved not. I walked over to where he lay and touched him with my foot to rouse him. At the action, gentle though it was, he fell to pieces. That is what happened. He literally and actually crumbled into a mouldering heap of bones and dust. For the space of perhaps a minute, I stared down at the shapeless heap that had once been Pepper. I stood feeling stunned. What can have happened? I asked myself, not at once grasping the grim significance of that little hill of ash. Then, as I stirred the heap with my foot, it occurred to me that this could only happen in a great space of time. Years and years. Outside, the weaving, fluttering light held the world. Inside, I stood trying to understand what it meant, what that little pile of dust and dry bones on the carpet meant. But I could not think coherently. I glanced away round the room and now, for the first time, noticed how dusty and old the place looked. Dust and dirt everywhere, piled in little heaps in the corner and spread upon the furniture. The very carpet itself was invisible between a coating of the same, all-pervading material. As I walked, little clouds of the stuff rose up from under my footsteps and assailed my nostrils with a dry, bitter odour that made me wheeze huskily. Suddenly, as my glance fell again upon Pepper's remains, I stood still and gave voice to my confusion, questioning aloud whether the years were indeed passing, whether this which I had taken to be a form of vision, was in truth a reality. I paused. A new thought had struck me. Quickly, but with steps which, for the first time I noticed, tottered, I went across the room to the great pier-glass and looked in. It was too covered with grime to give back any reflection, and with trembling hands I began to rub off the dirt. Presently I could see myself. The thought that had come to me was confirmed. Instead of the great, hale man who scarcely looked fifty, I was looking at a bent, decrepit man, whose shoulders stooped and whose face was wrinkled with the years of a century. The hair, which a few short hours ago had been nearly coal-black, was now silvery white. Only the eyes were bright. Gradually I traced in that ancient man a faint resemblance to myself of other days. I turned away and tottered to the window. I knew now that I was old, and the knowledge seemed to confirm my trembling walk. For a little space I stared moodily out into the blurred vista of changeful landscape. Even in that short time a year passed, and with a petulant gesture I left the window.
As I did so, I noticed that my hand shook with the palsy of old age, and a short sob choked its way through my lips. For a little while I paced tremulously between the window and the table. My gaze wandered hither and thither uneasily. How dilapidated the room was! Everywhere lay the thick dust, thick, sleepy, and black. The fender was a shape of rust. The chains that held the brass clock weights had rusted through long ago, and now the weights lay on the floor beneath themselves, two cones of verdigris. As I glanced about, it seemed to me that I could see the very furniture of the room rotting and decaying before my eyes. Nor was this fancy on my part, for all at once the bookshelf along the side wall collapsed with a cracking and rending of rotten wood, precipitating its contents upon the floor and filling the room with a smother of dusty atoms. How tired I felt! As I walked, it seemed that I could hear my dry joints creak and crack at every step. I wondered about my sister. Was she dead as well as Pepper? All had happened so quickly and suddenly. This must be, indeed, the beginning of the end of all things. It occurred to me to go to look for her, but I felt too weary. And then she had been so queer about these happenings of late. Of late. I repeated the words and laughed feebly, mirthlessly, as the realization was borne in upon me that I spoke of a time half a century gone. Half a century. It might have been twice as long. I moved slowly to the window and looked out once more across the world. I can best describe the passage of day and night at this period as a sort of gigantic, ponderous flicker. Moment by moment the acceleration of time continued, so that at nights now I saw the moon only as a swaying trail of palish fire that varied from a mere line of light to a nebulous path and then dwindled again, disappearing periodically. The flicker of the days and nights quickened. The days had grown perceptibly darker and a queer quality of dusk lay, as it were, in the atmosphere. The nights were so much lighter that the stars were scarcely to be seen, saving here and there an occasional hair-like line of fire that seemed to sway a little with the moon. Quicker and ever quicker ran the flicker of day and night, and suddenly it seemed I was aware that the flicker had died out, and instead there reigned a comparatively steady light, which was shed upon all the world from an eternal river of flame that swung up and down, north and south, in stupendous, mighty swings. The sky was now grown very much darker, and there was in the blue of it a heavy gloom, as though a vast blackness peered through it upon the earth. Yet there was in it also a strange and awful clearness and emptiness. Periodically I had glimpses of a ghostly track of fire that swayed thin and darkly toward the sunstream, vanished and reappeared. It was the scarcely visible moonstream. Looking out at the landscape, I was conscious again of a blurring sort of flitter that came either from the light of the ponderous swinging sunstream or was the result of the incredibly rapid changes of the earth's surface. 
and every few moments, so it seemed, the snow would lie suddenly upon the world and vanish as abruptly as though an invisible giant flitted a white sheet off and on the earth. Time fled, and the weariness that was mine grew insupportable. I turned from the window and walked once across the room, the heavy dust deadening the sound of my footsteps. Each step that I took seemed a greater effort than the one before. An intolerable ache knew me in every joint and limb as I trod my way with a weary uncertainty. By the opposite wall I came to a weak pause and wondered dimly what was my intent. I looked to my left and saw my old chair. The thought of sitting in it brought a faint sense of comfort to my bewildered wretchedness. Yet, because I was so weary and old and tired, I would scarcely brace my mind to do anything but stand and wish myself past those few yards. I rocked as I stood. The floor even seemed a place for rest, but the dust lay so thick and sleepy and black. I turned with a great effort of will and made toward my chair. I reached it with a groan of thankfulness and sat down. Everything about me appeared to be growing dim. It was all so strange and unthought of. Last night I was a comparatively strong, though elderly man, and now, only a few hours later, I looked at the little dust heap that had once been Pepper. Hours. And I laughed, a feeble, bitter laugh, a shrill, crackling laugh that shocked my dimming senses. For a while I must have dozed. Then I opened my eyes with a start. Somewhere across the room there had been a muffled noise of something falling. I looked and saw vaguely a cloud of dust hovering above a pile of debris. Nearer the door something else tumbled with a crash. It was one of the cupboards. But I was tired and took little notice. I closed my eyes and sat there in a state of drowsy semi-unconsciousness. Once or twice, as though coming through thick mists, I heard noises faintly. Then I must have slept. Chapter 16 The Awakening I awoke with a start. For a moment I wondered where I was, then memory came to me. The room was still lit with that strange light, half sun, half moonlight. I felt refreshed, and the tired, weary ache had left me. I went slowly across to the window and looked out. Overhead the river of flame drove up and down, north and south, in a dancing semicircle of fire. As a mighty sleigh in the loom of time, it seemed in a sudden fancy of mine, to be beating home the picks of the years. For so vastly had the passage of time been accelerated that there was no longer any sense of the sun passing from east to west. The only apparent movement was the north and south beat of the sunstream that had become so swift now as to be better described as a quiver. As I peered out there came to me a sudden inconsequent memory of that last journey among the outer worlds, I remembered the sudden vision that had come to me as I neared the solar system of the fast whirling planets about the sun, 
as though the governing quality of time had been held in abeyance, and the machine of a universe allowed to run down an eternity in a few moments or hours. The memory passed, along with a but partially comprehended suggestion that I had been permitted a glimpse into future time-spaces. I stared out again, seemingly at the quake of the sunstream. The speed seemed to increase even as I looked. Several lifetimes came and went as I watched. Suddenly it struck me with a sort of grotesque seriousness that I was still alive. I thought of Pepper and wondered how it was that I had not followed his fate. He had reached the time of his dying and had passed, probably through sheer length of years. And here I was alive, hundreds of thousands of centuries after my rightful period of years. For a time I mused absently. Yesterday... I stopped. Suddenly. Yesterday. There was no yesterday. The yesterday of which I spoke had been swallowed up in the abyss of years, ages gone. I grew dazed with much thinking. Presently I turned from the window and glanced round the room. It seemed different, strangely, utterly different. Then I knew what it was that made it appear so strange. It was bare. There was not a piece of furniture in the room, not even a solitary fitting of any sort. Gradually my amazement went as I remembered that this was but the inevitable end of the process of decay which I had witnessed commencing before my sleep. Thousands of years. Millions of years. Over the floor was spread a deep layer of dust that reached halfway up to the window seat. It had grown immeasurably whilst I slept and represented the dust of untold ages. Undoubtedly atoms of the old, decayed furniture helped to swell its bulk, and, somewhere among it all, moulded the long-ago dead pepper. All at once it occurred to me that I had no recollection of wading knee-deep through all that dust after I awoke. True, an incredible age of years had passed since I approached the window— but that was evidently as nothing compared with the countless spaces of time that, I conceived, had vanished whilst I was sleeping. I remembered now that I had fallen asleep sitting in my old chair. Had it gone? I glanced towards where it had stood. Of course, there was no chair to be seen. I could not satisfy myself whether it had disappeared after my waking, or before. If it had moulded under me, surely I would have been waked by the collapse. Then I remembered that the thick dust which covered the floor would have been sufficient to soften my fall, so that it was quite possible I had slept upon the dust for a million years more. As these thoughts wandered through my brain, I glanced again casually to where the chair had stood. Then, for the first time, I noticed that there were no marks in the dust of my footprints between it and the window. But then, ages of years had passed since I had awakened, Tens of thousands of years. My look rested thoughtfully again upon the place where once stood my chair. Suddenly I passed from abstraction to intentness. For there, in its standing place, I made out a long undulation, rounded off with the heavy dust. Yet it was not so much hidden, but that I could tell what had caused it. I knew, and shivered at the knowledge, and that it was a human body, ages dead, lying there, 
beneath the place where I had slept. It was lying on its right side, its back turned toward me. I could make out and trace each curve and outline, softened and moulded, as it were, in the black dust. In a vague sort of way I tried to account for its presence there. Slowly I began to grow bewildered, as the thought came to me that it lay just about where I must have fallen when the chair collapsed. Gradually an idea began to form itself within my brain, a thought that shook my spirit. It seemed hideous and insupportable, yet it grew upon me steadily until it became a conviction. The body under that coating, that shroud of dust, was neither more nor less than my own dead shell. I did not attempt to prove it. I knew it now, and wondered I had not known it all along. I was a bodiless thing. A while I stood trying to adjust my thoughts to this new problem. In time, how many thousands of years I know not, I attained to some degree of quietude, sufficient to enable me to pay attention to what was transpiring around me. Now I saw that the elongated mound had sunk, collapsed level with the rest of the spreading dust, and fresh atoms impalpable had settled above that mixture of grave powder which the eons had ground. A long while I stood turned from the window. Gradually I grew more collected, while the world slipped across the centuries into the future. Presently I began a survey of the room. Now I saw that time was beginning its destructive work even on this strange old building. That it had stood through all the years was, it seemed to me, proof that it was something different from any other house. I do not think, somehow, that I had thought of its decaying. The why I could not have said. It was not until I had meditated upon the matter for some considerable time that I fully realized that the extraordinary space of time through which it had stood was sufficient to have utterly pulverized the very stones of which it was built, had they been taken from any earthly quarry. Yes, it was undoubtedly moldering now, all the plaster had gone from the walls, even as the woodwork of the room had gone many ages before. While I stood in contemplation, a piece of glass from one of the small diamond-shaped panes dropped with a dull tap amid the dust upon the sill behind me, and crumbled into a little heap of powder. As I turned from contemplating it, I saw light between a couple of the stones that form the outer wall. Evidently the mortar was falling away. After a while I turned once more to the window and peered out. I discovered now that the speed of time had become enormous. The lateral quiver of the sunstream had grown so swift as to cause the dancing semicircle of flame to merge into and disappear in a sheet of fire that covered half the southern sky from east to west. From the sky I glanced down to the gardens. They were just a blur of a palish dirty green. I had a feeling that they stood higher than in the old days, a feeling that they were nearer my window as though they had risen bodily. Yet they were still a long way below me, for the rock over the mouth of the pit on which this house stands arches up to a great height. It was later that I noticed a change in the constant colour of the gardens. The pale, dirty green was growing ever paler and paler toward white. At last, after a great space, 
they became greyish-white and stayed thus for a very long time. Finally, however, the greyness began to fade, even as had the green into a dead white, and this remained constant and unchanged. And by this I knew that, at last, snow lay upon all the northern world. And so, by millions of years, time winged onward through eternity, to the end, the end of which, in the old days, I had thought remotely and in hazily speculative fashion. And now it was approaching in a manner of which none had ever dreamed. I recollect that about this time I began to have a lively, though morbid, curiosity as to what would happen when the end came. But I seemed strangely without imaginings. All this while the steady process of decay was continuing. The few remaining pieces of glass had long ago vanished, and every now and then a soft thud and a little cloud of rising dust would tell of some fragment of fallen mortar or stone. I looked up again to the fiery sheet that quaked in the heavens above me and far down into the southern sky. As I looked, the impression was borne in upon me that it had lost some of its first brilliancy, that it was duller, deeper-hued. I glanced down once more to the blurred white of the worldscape. Sometimes my look returned to the burning sheet of dulling flame that was and yet hid the sun. At times I glanced behind me into the growing dust of the great silent room with its eon carpet of sleeping dust. So I watched through the fleeting ages, lost in soul-wearing thoughts and wonderings, and possessed with a new weariness. Chapter 17 The Slowing Rotation it might have been a million years later that I perceived beyond possibility of doubt that the fiery sheet that lit the world was indeed darkening. Another vast space went by, and the whole enormous flame had sunk to a deep copper colour. Gradually it darkened from copper to copper red, and from this at times to a deep, heavy, purplish tint, with in it a strange loom of blood. Although the light was decreasing, I could perceive no diminishment in the apparent speed of the sun. It still spread itself in that dazzling veil of speed. The world, so much of it as I could see, had assumed a dreadful shade of gloom, as though, in very deed, the last days of the worlds approached. The sun was dying. Of that there could be little doubt. And still the earth whirled onward through space and all the eons. At this time, I remember, an extraordinary sense of bewilderment took me. I found myself later wandering mentally amid an odd chaos of fragmentary modern theories and the old biblical story of the world's ending. Then, for the first time, there flashed across me the memory that the sun, with its systems of planets, was, and had been, travelling through space at an incredible speed. Abruptly, the question rose, Where? For a very great time I pondered this matter, but finally, with a certain sense of the futility of my puzzlings, I let my thoughts wander to other things. I grew to wondering how much longer the house would stand. Also I queried to myself whether I should be doomed to stay bodiless upon the earth through the dark time that I knew was coming. 
From these thoughts I fell again to speculations upon the possible direction of the sun's journey through space. And so another great while passed. Gradually, as time fled, I began to feel the chill of a great winter. Then I remembered that, with the sun dying, the cold must be necessarily extraordinarily intense. Slowly, slowly, as the eons slipped into eternity, the earth sank into a heavier and redder gloom. The dull flame in the firmament took on a deeper tint, very sombre and turbid. Then at last it was borne upon me that there was a change. The fiery, gloomy curtain of flame that hung quaking overhead and down away into the southern sky began to thin and contract, and in it, as one sees the fast vibrations of a jarred harp-string, I saw once more the sun-stream quivering, giddily, north and south. Slowly the likeness to a sheet of fire disappeared, and I saw plainly the slowing beat of the sun-stream. Yet even then the speed of its swing was inconceivably swift, and all the time the brightness of the fiery arc grew even duller. Underneath the world loomed dimly an indistinct ghostly region. Overhead the river of flame swayed slower, and even slower, until at last it swung to the north and south in great ponderous beats that lasted through seconds. A long space went by, and now each sway of the great belt lasted nigh on a minute, so that, after a great while, I ceased to distinguish it as a visible movement, and the streaming fire ran in a steady river of dull flame across the deadly-looking sky. An indefinite period passed, and it seemed that the arc of fire became less sharply defined. It appeared to me to grow more attenuated, and I thought blackish streaks showed occasionally. Presently, as I watched, the smooth onward flow ceased, and I was able to perceive that there came a momentary but regular darkening of the world. This grew until, once more, night descended in short but periodic intervals upon the wearying earth. Longer and longer became the nights, and the days equaled them, so that at last the day and the night grew to the duration of seconds in length, and the sun showed once more like an almost invisible coppery-red-coloured ball within the glowing mistiness of its flight. Corresponding to the dark lines showed at times in its trail, there were now distinctly to be seen on the half-visible sun itself great dark belts. Year after year flashed into the past, and the days and nights spread into minutes. The sun had ceased to have the appearance of a tail, and now rose and set a tremendous globe of a glowing copper-bronze hue, in parts ringed with blood-red bands, in others with the dusky ones that I have already mentioned. These circles, both red and black, were of varying thicknesses. For a time I was at a loss to account for their presence. Then it occurred to me that it was scarcely likely that the sun would cool evenly all over, and that these markings were due probably to differences in temperature of the various areas, the red representing those parts where the heat was still fervent, and the black those portions which were already comparatively cool. It struck me as a peculiar thing that the sun should cool in evenly defined rings, until I remembered that, possibly, they were but isolated patches to which the enormous rotary speed of the sun had imparted a belt-like appearance. 
The sun itself was very much greater than the sun I had known in the old world days, and from this I argued that it was considerably nearer. At night the moon still showed, but small and remote, and the light she reflected was so dull and weak that she seemed little more than the small dim ghost of the older moon that I had known. Gradually the days and nights lengthened out until they equaled a space somewhat less than one of the old earth hours, the sun rising and setting like a great ruddy bronze disc crossed with ink-black bars. About this time I found myself able once more to see the gardens with clearness, for the world had now grown very still and changeless. Yet I am not correct in saying gardens, for there were no gardens, nothing that I knew or recognised. In place thereof I looked out upon a vast plain stretching away into distance. A little to my left there was a low range of hills. Everywhere there was a uniform white covering of snow, in places rising into hummocks and ridges. It was only now that I recognised how really great had been the snowfall. In places it was vastly deep, as was witnessed by a great unleaping wave-shaped hill away to my right, though it is not impossible that this was due in part to some rise in the surface of the ground. Strangely enough, the range of low hills to my left, already mentioned, was not entirely covered with the universal snow. Instead I could see their bare, dark sides showing in several places, and everywhere and always there reigned an incredible death silence and desolation, the immutable, awful quiet of a dying world. All this time the days and nights were lengthening, perceptibly. Already each day occupied maybe some two hours from dawn to dusk, at night I had been surprised to find that there were very few stars overhead, and these small, though of an extraordinary brightness, which I attributed to the peculiar but clear blackness of the night-time. Away to the north I could discern a nebulous sort of mistiness, not unlike in appearance a small portion of the Milky Way. It might have been an extremely remote star-cluster, or, the thought came to me suddenly, perhaps it was the sidereal universe that I had known and now left far behind forever, a small dimly glowing mist of stars far in the depths of space. Still the days and nights lengthened slowly. Each time the sun rose duller than it had set, and the dark belts increased in breadth. About this time there happened a fresh thing. The sun, earth, and sky were suddenly darkened, and apparently blotted out for a brief space. I had a sense... A certain awareness, I could learn little by sight, that the earth was enduring a very great fall of snow. Then in an instant the veil that had obscured everything vanished, and I looked out once more. A marvellous sight met my gaze. The hollow in which this house with its garden stands was brimmed with snow. It lipped over the sill of my window. Everywhere it lay a great level stretch of white which caught and reflected gloomily the sombre coppery glows of the dying sun. The world had become a shadowless plain from horizon to horizon. I glanced up at the sun. It shone with an extraordinary dull clearness. I saw it now as one who, until then, had seen it only through a partially obscuring medium. All about it the sky had become black, with a 
clear deep blackness, frightful in its nearness, and its unmeasured deep and its utter unfriendliness. For a great time I looked into it, newly and shaken and fearful. It was so near. Had I been a child I might have expressed some of my sensation and distress by saying that the sky had lost its roof. Later I turned and peered about me into the room. Everywhere it was coloured with a thin shroud of the all-pervading white. I could see it but dimly by reason of the sombre light that now lit the world. It appeared to cling to the ruined walls, and the thick, soft dust of the years that covered the floor knee-deep was nowhere visible. The snow must have blown in through the open framework of the windows. Yet in no place had it drifted, but lay everywhere about the great old room smooth and level. Moreover, there had been no wind these many thousand years, but there was the snow, as I have told. And all the earth was silent, and there was a cold such as no living man can ever have known. The earth was now illuminated by day with a most doleful light, beyond my power to describe. It seemed as though I looked at the great plain through the medium of a bronze-tinted sea. It was evident that the earth's rotatory movement was departing steadily. The end came all at once. The night had been the longest yet, and when the dying sun showed at last above the world's edge, I had grown so wearied of the dark that I greeted it as a friend. It rose steadily until about twenty degrees above the horizon. Then it stopped suddenly, and after a strange retrograde movement hung motionless, a great shield in the sky. Only the circular rim of the sun showed bright, only this and one thin streak of light near the equator. Gradually even this thread of light died out, and now all that was left of our great and glorious sun was a vast dead disk rimmed with a thin circle of bronze-red light. the end of the sun, the solar system, the earth, and all we know, when suddenly we're faced with the return of the woman who got away. Hmm? I must say I've been lucky. After 40 years, I finally married my one who got away, the wondrous Miss Tecilia. I would love to talk a bit more about William Hope Hodgson and his work, his life. But alas, if I am to get you home ere dawn, I'll encourage you to take up that study for yourselves. I further urge you to gather that which you brought, tuck your horse pistol into your belt for safety's sake on the way, and be off with you. Such swine things that will be on the streets of the hood at this hour are merely the remnants of normal humans 
who chose to become fans of the Chicago Cubs and denizens of the sports bars available to them this close to Wrigley Field. But just keep your powder dry and stay by the shadows of the side streets, and you will be fine. And please, be assured, after your sleep and when you awake tomorrow, there will be a sun in the sky, a bright golden sun on which you may surely hang. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. A lifetime of pleasant dreams. Hmm. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.